0: With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com.
1: What's better than 8 free beers? That's right, 10. The festive season is upon us, and in the spirit of giving and charity, Beer 52 are offering listeners 10 free beers. All you have to do is go to www.beer52.com slash snooker ...and cover £5.95 for postage to claim your free case. What's more, do it before the 17th of December and get two extra beers. Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They send experts around the globe to find the best beer available anywhere on planet Earth. Each month, their members receive a new case, usually from a different part of the world. Members have had beer from more than 40 countries across five continents. Grab yourself this treat in time for Christmas. You can impress friends, family and dinner guests with a cast of happy IPAs, crisp craft lagers and sumptuous stouts. If dark beer is not your thing, simply choose the light option instead of a mixed case. As well as all the delicious beer, you'll receive Ferment Magazine, which delves into the beers, breweries and theme. You'll also get two delicious snacks to wash down with the beer. After redeeming your first case, you'll join the monthly beer club at £24 a month. No minimum commitment, pause or cancel at any time. Remember, go to www.beer52.com slash snooker to claim your free case. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. First things first, congratulations to Judd Trump winning his first title of the season, the Kazoo Champion of Champions. And of course, he's won that title for the first time. He'd lost in a couple of finals uh, prior to his victory over John Higgins. Um, it was a, an interesting match, I think, because it wasn't all flashy uh, snooker and big breaks, which we had when Trump lost to Neil Robertson a couple of years ago in the same tournament. But in terms of match play snooker, um, very impressive, I thought, Trump. Uh, you just see the, the layers to his game now. And uh, a thoroughly deserved win. Of course, he was 3-0 down. I think Higgins, he didn't say this himself, but he must have been tired after that Saturday night grind against Yan Tao. Maybe that was a factor, but also the factor was that Trump played well in the tournament. He got better and better as it went on. Of course, he'd only lost one frame in reaching the final and uh, was the deserved winner. Congratulations to him. I'm sure there'll be plenty more wins to come uh, for him. Uh, in this uh, edition of the podcast, I'm going to go through the emails which have built up. There are quite a few about last week. and uh, I just want to say I, I had a great week there. Um, however anyone wants to rank the tournaments, for me, the champion of champions is one of the most enjoyable to actually work at. I do think, though, that the, it has to be said, the standard of playing wasn't necessarily um, the, the best we've seen at tournaments. Uh, there were some good matches. Uh, we had, of course, uh, Kyron Wilson against Neil Robertson. Uh, the Higgins Yambing Town match was very dramatic. Um, the Yambing Towns win actually over Mark Selby, I thought, was a really good match. And uh, Higgins played really well to beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. But in semi-finals and final, there wasn't a single century break. So. It wasn't the sort of um, dazzling snooker all week that maybe we were hoping for, maybe we were expecting, but you can't get that every week and you can't get a classic final every time. We've already had two deciders this season, so maybe it was asking a lot to get another one. But uh, let's find out what uh, the listeners think. Callum Law, he said, I thought the Champion of Champions was another very enjoyable week of snooker. In the final, I think we witnessed one of the great displays of safety in recent times from Judd Trump. In the evening session, particularly, Trump managed to starve one of the all-time greats of any chances and constantly had Higgins under pressure any time he came to the table. For me, it just emphasised again that Trump is the complete player, because although he didn't score particularly heavily, it was an excellent display of match play snooker. For Higgins, it's disappointing to fall at the last hurdle again, but overall, overall his game remains in very good shape. Yeah, well, of course, three finals in a row were for John Higgins, so obviously disappointment for him, but I think he could he could swallow this one because he didn't get close to winning it. He accepted he'd, he'd been outplayed. Tony Finnegan gets straight to the point. Saturday afternoon, not working, mouth-watering semi-final lineup for the champion of champions, and no snooker to watch. Surely a case for a two-session afternoon and evening semi-final. Got to be, surely. Well, Tony, no, is the answer. The format's always been the same, and it's very straightforward. I can understand people want to watch snooker on a Saturday afternoon, but ITV have racing on Saturday afternoon. It's usually on ITV4. Now, this, this year it was actually on ITV itself. But even so, they didn't particularly want the two sports to clash. And also next year it may be back on ITV4, so that slot won't be available. But this is not no, nothing new; it's always been like this. People have said, "Oh, you know, we need a we need a, a two session semi final." Well, it just doesn't fit into this format. This is the format. As I say, we all want to you know watch watch as much snooker as possible. I think the only problem maybe is that you, there is a sense when you're at the event, you get to that Friday. I mean, me and Alan went to the Norbreck. <laughs> The Norbert Castle Hotel in Blackpool, and I'm at Manus and myself, and that'll be next week's podcast. By the way, you can hear about our adventures there. Um, that you know, for something to do above anything else, it does drag a little bit. Um, but as I say, that's the format, and as with all formats that have ever been for, for snooker professional snooker tournaments, they fit in with what the broadcasters need, and that is what the format is. So it's not going to uh, it's not going to change any time soon. James one. Uh, he's talking about Mark Selby In fact we'll come to that in a moment James Because I still want to talk about the Champion of Champions Now of course the clothing uh, Created uh, a bit of comment And uh, this is what Damien Short has to say Of course last week I had Emily Fraser The Managing, Direct, Managing Director of and Multisport is the promoter of the event on And uh, Damien says I was wondering after listening to you interviewing Emily last week If snooker is going down the road of cricket Emily was refreshingly open in saying That one of the motivations of the t-shirts For the Champion of Champions was a long-term goal to have particular styles and colour of T-shirts become associated with the player, and fans would then buy the shirt of their favourite player. Nothing at all wrong with Matroom trying to make a few quid off merchandise, in my view. Emily also mentioned the dance cam, which, having been to Bolton last night, isn't yet a rip-roaring success. Just a couple of slightly well-oiled fans giving it Dixie in the hope of winning a signed snooker ball. But it might take off. And then there's the prospect of the cheerleaders, which might finish Ronnie off once and for all. However, it seems we might see snooker have two variations. Much like cricket back in the day, I'm ancient enough to remember the move away from players wearing whites for limited overs cricket, and then the rise of T20. Eventually, the different variants became known as red ball and white ball cricket. Red ball was the serious stuff, the pinnacle for both players and fans. White ball had the razzmatazz and provided a quick fix for punters who could watch an entire match after work on a summer's evening whilst providing the hospitality and permitting a more raucous experience. Maybe cricket is heading for waistcoat snooker and t-shirt snooker. Uh, maybe well, maybe snooker is heading for that, I guess he means. Uh, I think there's room enough for all of us. With the purists, of which I count myself one, having about half the events played in the format of our preference, then the other half of the tour catering for the fans who like to have a few drinks and be able to pop in and out to recharge their glasses whenever they choose to. If Emily's contemplating such a situation, can I suggest they leave a longer break between frames? Last night in Bolton... There were too many interruptions caused by fans being locked out when a frame commenced whilst they were still out for the toilet. They then caused a ruckus when security wouldn't let them back in. Thank you, Damien. Good use of ruckus there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the clothing obviously was a talking point. I mean, it's funny because we've been asked, when I was doing this with Michael, we were asked several times about um, the clothing and we sort of both agreed we kind of like the smart clothing, but we don't really care enough to get excited about it. Um, if these t- sh- The whole point of the Champion to Champions really It's a matchroom event, not a World Snooker Tour event And as we heard from Emily last week They're trying to make it different She admitted openly they hadn't quite got it right um, The dance cam th- 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 I was amazed at the, sort of, the frothing at the mouth online about this Purely because it's not for a TV audience It wasn't shown on TV It was only for the people at the venue The idea is, and we've seen it in other sporting events They play music and uh, the, you're not forced to dance, by the way. This is I must make this clear. They don't put the camera on you and force you. It's for people who want to. A lot of a lot of people did want to, and I think Damon is right. Quite a few of them had had a drink, but there were kids there as well who enjoyed it. It only lasted about a minute and a half. It wasn't a big deal at all. I thought some of the sort of pompous comments about it were ridiculous, frankly. Um, some people were entertained by it. Some people doubtless thought it was cringeworthy. But this is the point, and this is what Emily was saying. Matchroom now will go away, they'll review what they did at the tournament, including the clothing and everything else, and they'll say, OK, what worked and what didn't. And what worked, they'll take forward and try and develop more, and what didn't, I guess they'll ditch. And that <laughs> seems to me to be quite responsible. They're trying to make it different, they're trying to make it enjoyable for the audience, um, and they'll take feedback from the audience, people in Bolton. I'll tell you what, it was a great atmosphere, great crowd... Really got into it. It was interesting how many were still there after midnight watching Higgins and Yambing Town Saturday into Sunday. Um, so it seemed a successful venue. It was a very lively place. And all the stuff around it is part of that. I guess the point, though, is in, you're saying about you know red and white ball cricket. Champion of Champions is a prestigious event. And it should look like a prestigious event. So it's a question of to what extent do we want to make it look different and not sacrifice that prestige? Because there's no doubt... It is a big tournament, this. You know, it's all top players and you could tell Judd Trump was very happy to win it. I mean, he said about, you know, the people saying, I only win small tournaments. You know, well, no tournament is easy to win. Um, and again, I think that's a little sign of, I've said this before, Judge Trump, unlike the champions of the past, has so much access to people's opinions because of social media. And I think maybe... Possibly has read too many of them because uh, you know he's won so many big tournaments over the last few years and this uh, this was another one of them. But uh, it'll be interesting to see next year at the Champion of Champions, OK, is the clothing back? Is all the stuff around it back? As I say, Matchroom will look at it and they'll evaluate it based on the feedback from the people that were there. Um, and and that includes the players, of course, as well. But I, I didn't hear many bad comments from them. Uh, and, and Jordan was saying, actually, he thought the atmosphere was terrific as he was waiting uh, to... To be introduced. We'll move on. Uh, Malcolm Johnston on Judd Trump. He said, "I'm watching him turn on the afterburners in the final." And the thought crossed my mind in regards to the most dominant players over the years. I know you've done various types of comparisons on the podcast. But of all the top players, like '80s Davis, '90s Hendry, turn of the millennium Higgins, or 12 to 13, Ronnie O'Sullivan at the world's is Judd the most unplayable player when in top gear? I've been an obsessed snooker fan since the early 80s and I'm a self-confessed O'Sullivan fan. But uh, what Judd does to a top-class player when he's in stroke is truly scary. He turns a 12-foot table into a pool table and makes the insanely tight pockets look like buckets. That and his winning attitude in the last couple of years must be as dominant as there's ever been. I think all those players you you mentioned had their spells. I mean, Davis was the most dominant player for a decade and so was Stephen Hendry. And there have been spells where Ronnie O'Sullivan has destroyed top players John Higgins has done the same. Mark Selby, actually, in a different sort of way, maybe, has done the same. Uh, Neil Robertson, you know, beat Ronnie in in that Tour Championship final very comfortably. Uh, But, yeah, Trump is is definitely, you know, he's definitely up there, isn't he? I mean, mean, to me, the key stat, actually, is this. From his last 19 finals, he's won 16 titles. From his last 19 finals, he's won 16 titles. And if you look at the three he lost, two were 10-9. One was the champion of Champions to Robertson. Uh, one was the UK final last year to Robertson, which was which was on the pink, and the other one was a best of five championship league. I was talking to Ken Doherty about this last night, and he couldn't believe it. He said I, he said that he'd been in nineteen ranking finals, Ken this is, or nineteen finals, and and won six. Um, and he said it's so hard to win finals because you, you're obviously playing someone who's played well. It's usually another top player. He couldn't believe that strike rate sixteen titles from his last nineteen finals. Um, so that is dominance. I don't care what anyone says. That is dominance. Uh, obviously you know we look at the really big tournaments we've got one coming up the UK championship uh and the world championship of course later in, later in the season a lot of people sort of say he's got to win more of those but he has won them all already and uh you know he he's going to be uh well he's going to be favorite isn't he in york i think to uh, to win that tournament we'll we'll see how he gets on now then let's go to uh let's go to James Wan who, who I mentioned earlier I've been having a running argument with a friend recently. I strongly believe that if Mark Selby had been around in Stephen Hendry's pomp, it'd be Selby with the seven world titles, not Hendry. As Ronnie said, playing Mark at the Crucible is the ultimate test. In a fantasy final, Hendry would would have been aggressive from the get-go and rattled Selby with high breaks. But eventually Mark would come up with different strategies and just strangle Hendry's game, which was pretty one-dimensional. Four sessions at the Crucible, I fancy granite over ice. What do you think? Well, I think, firstly, to call Hendry's game one-dimensional is a little bit dismissive. I mean, he was an extraordinary player, full stop, and he changed the way the game is played as well. Um, we don't know is the answer. I mean, this is a pub argument, which is fine. M- most of this podcast is pub arguments. Uh, for my money, I think Mark Selby, you know, in that era would have thrived. But I think Stephen Hendry, at his best in this era, would thrive. So it, it's very hard to say who would have won have won. But the one thing we do have to go on, I suppose, is, is the final Hendry played against Ken Doherty who I suppose is sort of nearer to a Selby star player. And Hendry in that final made five centuries and outscored Ken, but Ken won the close frames, you know, the frames with little clearances, colours, battles, and of course he won the match 18 12. So whether that's any evidence or not, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it's one of those arguments that the literally is, <laughs> is no right answer to. Now, I'm not saying this. Podcast hasn't been planned properly, but I've just noticed we have actually had another email about the champion of champions. So let's go back to that. And it is from Malcolm Johnston again. Thanks, Malcolm. He said after just one afternoon. So he wrote this on day one of the tournament. Okay, so obviously, you know, his view may have changed over the week. But this is what he said. After just one session of the champion of champions and the World Snooker Tour website poll regarding the new style polo shirts, he's massively against. Well, I know snooker is a traditionalist type sport, but please let's get real. The newer-type shirts are nowhere near as loud as they could have been. Peter Wright-style darts shirt. In fact, I thought them quite tame, being mainly black. But surely lovers of the sport should think anything that can bridge the gap between the old-fashioned image of snooker and the success of Matchroom's other prominent promotions, such as darts or the Moscone Cup, has got to be welcomed. Let's not kid ourselves, the only thing really keeping the UK at the top of the sport is a handful of extremely talented players that will come to an end sooner rather than later, and the sport will head to the Far East. Anything that can open doors to younger players is positive... And Aramadi fans that think this is the end of the sport need to see the light and welcome, and welcome a type of update brought about in conjunction with the players, such as these shirts. Yeah, we we'll, have we'll doubled back on what we were talking about earlier here, but um, I, it's not the end of the sport. Anyone who thinks they're wear, because they're wearing polo shirts, t-shirts, that that's the end of snooker, it's just ludicrous, obviously. Um, however, I do understand that people like the traditional wear. It, it, it's it's a certain look that snooker has that gives it a bit of class, and it's the look. I've always basically known. So I guess there's a sort of bias in there already. If you've always seen something, you're probably going to want to stick with it. Cricket was mentioned earlier. Of course, they did change the, the clothing in cricket. Uh, Kerry Packer in the with the World Series in the 70s. And there was a big hoo-ha over that. Oh, you can't change the whites. Now, no one really bats an eyelid. You put cricket on test matches, they still wear the whites. But other forms of the game, they wear different colour clothing. If the sport's compelling, then really all the rest of it is just it is just kind of... You know, stuff round the side, isn't it, I think um, I, I like the formal wear But the, the shirts just gave this event an identity And that's kind of You're never going to convince everybody of that And as Emily said last week Maybe next year they can do it better But, um, yeah it, I, I think I think it's what was interesting as the week went on People spoke less and less about it um, Well, they're on to the dance camp by then, of course <laughs> Now <clears throat> This email is entitled Niche Stuff Which is what we like Ian Lewis I know you're not afraid to delve into niche stuff, so here are a couple of random thoughts. Whilst watching the English Open, I spied referee Jan Verhas, who has been around a long time, and it occurred to me, are there any stats for the refs? Most matches officiated, number of 147s officiated, anything niche like that. Point number two, I was playing snooker 19, which I'm much better at than real snooker, and I just humiliated Mark King in the World Championship opening round 10-0. Believe it or not, on the hard AI setting and and pro guides. And then went on to win the first two frames of round two Against Stuart Bingham So 12 straight frames What's the record for consecutive frames won at the Crucible? And for anyone interested uh, It sat at 5-3 after the first session Um, Well on that latter point uh, And by the way that's one on the eye for Mark King isn't it? 10-0 That that would be only the third Crucible whitewash if it was a real match But um, Stephen Hendry Won 19 frames over two World Championships So he won the last 10 against Jimmy in 92 And then the first 9 frames in the first round in 93 I think against Sarinda Gill But uh, I'm, I'm stand to be corrected on that But anyway, 19 over two events In one Crucible, I believe the record is still 13 That was Mark Williams um, So I think that was 2003-04, one of those years Maybe 2003 the year he won it so I don't have the crucible almanac to have to hand. Chris Downer would have all of this at his fingertips. But I believe in a single crucible, it's 13. So you've just missed out, actually, <laughs> with your 12. In terms of the referee, I, I had a chat, actually, with Jan Baas in Milton Keynes. I not seen him for a while. He's he's a veteran now, Jan, um, but a great referee over the years. There are stats for the most maximums. In fact, the referees very keenly very keenly keep up with it. Matt Hewitt on the WPBSA website on his list of maximums. Has the referees listed? I believe Brendan Moore is currently top of that list. Um, but uh, they're very keen whenever a, a maximum is made that their name is involved. It's interesting though, I spoke to Brendan about this at the Championship League and he said, look, I know absolutely it's got nothing to do with me, the fact a maximum has been made, you know, the 147 is down to the player. But it's nice to be there for history. It's nice to be on that list so that in 50 years' time, people will look back and they'll see those names and they'll always be part of it and it's true obviously if the breaks get shown again you know through whatever medium in 50 years time people are watching things i thought that was a lovely way of putting it actually and it made me think about maybe my own career as a commentator some of the matches i've done hopefully my unless someone wipes it off my voice will be in future years associated with some of the moments that we're enjoying now in the game um because so many of us our snooker fans, you know, as well as working in the sport. And to, to have that kind of, that presence, I guess, is, is, is a nice thought. And I, I hadn't really thought about that until I spoke to Brendan. So, yeah, the referees, uh, they, they're, they're all aware of that. In terms of most sort of finals done and so on, I'm not quite sure. I know Rudy Bounds, uh, Belgian Eurosport commentator, has a, a list. And there's if if you're interested in the Triple Crown finals, uh, the World Snooker Tour website has a list of all the referees from those finals over the years. So that's available on their website. Uh, but yes, hopefully hopefully that answers that ah, Mike McQuillan writes Still thoroughly enjoying the podcast It makes my midweek dog walk fly by <laughs> Keep up the good work, it's appreciated Thank you Mike I enjoyed hearing what the dapper, former snooker player Tony Mio is up to these days This put me in mind of a possible regular feature I'm an avid viewer of the big match revisiting on ITV4 in addition of this, from the mid-to-late 1970s, Brian Moore hosts a Where Are They Now feature, in which a viewer writes in to ask about a former footballer from the 1950s or 60s. Brian reads out the full address of the correspondent. Maybe you should miss that last bit out, but it would be good if you could possibly interview some former players or just dig up some information on their current status. It would be fascinating to hear somebody like Ray Reardon speak about the early days of the Crucible, and I'm sure would all enjoy an interview with the Silver Fox, Davy Taylor. You could ask him about the mystical David Taylor fan club, which, despite a couple of searches, seems to have no online presence whatsoever. Well, it's it's not a bad idea. I think that sounds, though, uh, Mike, like the sort of thing we might do when the season is not not sort of going on. It might be a summer project because uh, because there's a lot happening <laughs> right now. Not to say uh, not 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 least into Christmas, where as I record this, there's basically one day from now to December the twenty third. with no Snooker, and that's Friday. The re rigged day in York, so you know there's a lot going on. But yes, I, I it's not a bad idea. I like to hear the old the old uh, snooker players. They've got so many stories uh, from a time when there was no money in the game and they were doing the exhibition circuit, and then to be involved in the game when it became big must have been so exciting. Um, and what are they doing now? Yeah, you know that's what a lot of people are interested in. They're still big names. I mean, David Taylor. We you know we, we joked about his fan club. He was a huge name, the Silver Fox in the nineteen eighties. Uh, part of that that breed of players who you know just became big stars and so yes I will uh, because we saw Tony Knowles on on ITV4 if you saw that interview came to Bolton um, of course where from where he's uh, from where he originally hailed and uh, you know he walked in and it was like seeing an old rock star I mean he kind of looks that way anyway with his hair now but uh, there's a definite charisma and and presence about those guys that has not gone away so I will I will file that away as uh, maybe one for the summer Sam Kelly from Oldham, where Steve Davis made his first the first ever maximum, which is the anniversary of which will be in 40th anniversary will be in January. Anyway, that's all by the by. Sam says there are a couple of matters which I've been wondering about for some time, and for which I would be most grateful for words of wisdom from yourself and/or other contributors to your excellent podcast. Question one: Why is it that such a high proportion of referees nowadays are a youngish, b female, and c Eastern European? I cite Tatiana Wollaston, I've just looked up from Belarus Now I'm going to apologise here Because I, I still have no idea how to pronounce this name But Malgorzata Kanieska It's probably not that But anyway she's from Poland Deshyshlova Bosholova from Bulgaria among others I must emphasise I'm certainly not complaining Far from it they are of course all superb at the job But as far as I know there's no great tradition Of playing snooker in these countries So it would be interesting to know How so comparatively Many young women from Eastern Europe Came to be connected with the game Number two, what happens to chalk nowadays? Where does it go? As I understand it, most of the top professionals now use the brand which reduces the risk of kicks. A side effect of which is that it doesn't leave chalk deposits on the ball or the cloth. Evidence of which can we can all see by the unmarked appearance of the cloth during a match nowadays compared with years gone by. Players still chalk their cues as often as they ever did. So where does it go? Uh, well... On that point, I guess it stays on the tip. I think that's the idea behind it. It doesn't actually, it's not imparted onto the cue ball, so therefore the risk of kicks when the cue ball contacts the object ball is reduced. I guess that's the idea. Um, they don't seem to chalk their cues any less, though, so there's a lot of chalk on some of those tips. Um, and in answer to your first question, I mean, without, without sort of involving myself in this, Eurosport definitely had an effect because they have brought snooker to places that have never seen it before. And clearly, it's not just young women; it's men as well. Have seen it, and you know, want to be part of it. And I've gone into the refereeing game. The referees are a certain breed; they they attract a certain personality. But those personalities exist in lots of different countries. And you know, you name three great referees. I mean, I thought Tatiana was superb in that Higgins Yambing town match. It was such a long match, a lot of long frames, lengthy exchanges. She had to concentrate all night. And She did an impeccable job, no, no doubt about it. Um, she, uh, g- of course, met Ben, who Ben Wallaston, now her husband, at a tournament when she was officiating. You, we'd have to ask them why exactly they got into it, but it, I can get, pretty much guarantee it would have started with them seeing it on Eurosport and just being fascinated with the game, as you know we all were for whatever reason. And it's a good thing, I think, as you say, you know that, that we have this representation, not just uh, from Eastern Europe, but female as well. Just makes the game a little bit, I think, more interesting, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah, maybe we'll have to get one of them on at some point. Now then, uh, Donal Murtar has got an interesting subject here. I've noticed the increased prevalence of drinking among the crowd at snooker events over the last ten years. It appears that almost all events allow spectators to drink in their seats, with the Crucible being a notable exception. Is this down to the policy of the venue itself, or does World Snooker have some input? Regardless of whether... Spectators can drink in the auditorium itself. The presence of bevied-up audience members has always been a feature of snooker crowds, particularly during an evening session when the time between the afternoon and evening has been whiled away in predictable fashion. The accumulated Dutch courage can generate a lively atmosphere, but on occasions this has gone beyond acceptable limits. For example, in the recent Northern Irish Open, spectators were drinking in their seats. As you may recall, someone got up to leave just as Mark Allen was attempting matchball in the final. I strongly suspect the person in question was answering the call of nature after either overestimating their bladder capacity or underestimating the duration of the frame. I'm no teetotaler and have no objection to fans drinking before or even during matches, as long as it doesn't interrupt the play, but it seems inevitable that a few will overindulge. I wouldn't like to see snooker go the way of cricket or darts, wherein the contest is something of a sideshow and the drinking is the main attraction. It doesn't matter so much in those sports if the crowd gets a bit rowdy, because there's no expectation of silence, but obviously snooker is quite different. A related subject is the players themselves drinking. I know this hasn't been allowed for about 20 years. Stefan Masrosis is the last player I can remember overtly drinking at the Crucible. I presume it was banned in an effort to clean up the image of the sport, but it seems curious that World Snooker clamped down on players drinking but seemed increasingly tolerant of boozing spectators. Uh, many thanks for all your hard work on the podcast. Should our paths ever cross, i will be only too delighted to express my gratitude in the form of, of a half shandy. Thank you, Donald. Funny enough, I did meet a podcast listener uh, at Bolton last night after the final, uh, who did uh, I wouldn't say ply me with drink, but I I I I, I had a, I had a drink anyway. Um, yes, which te- which maybe says something about me answering this. I think I, I like to see people enjoying themselves. I go back to all, all the stuff i was talking about earlier on. I don't mind people having a drink. You've quite rightly said though that it can tip over, um, and there's security guards there who. Um, obviously we'll sling people out if if necessary We don't want it tipping over Becoming dance like as you've said I completely agree with that But I think if you're asking people to pay their money Come along and sit there I don't have a problem with them having a drink As long as it, as you say, doesn't get out of hand um, Some of the comments about the, the, the crowd I, I noticed on, on social media Which I, 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 I read increasingly less now Actually during tournaments Because it annoys me there were suggestions it was sort of the wrong sort of people. I mean, you can't say that about people who paid their own money. They're honest people, working class people from the north of England. They come along, you know, to say, "Oh, it's a darts crowd." Well, so what? <laughs> you know, they're not actually behaving badly. They're just enjoying themselves. And there were no major incidents during the week in Bolton. I'm talking about, um, you know, where it tipped over. Some people got a bit leery here and there, but it wasn't a major issue at all. The issue actually, I think the correspondent earlier on said, it was really about coming in and out between frames and there was a bit of noise behind the scenes as people were waiting to come back in um, when they'd gone to the bar but we didn't have any major incidents um, in terms of players drinking, yes, I mean they, they did clean it up, of course you can't stop people drinking before matches but that doesn't really happen now That's that belongs to the past people are much more professional now um, you know, it's just not a part of the culture, of course so much of the the drinking initially in snooker came from the snooker clubs. You know, you'd have a drink, you'd have a smoke, you'd have a bet. All that sort of that sort of cult culture is part of the the history of the sport, but it doesn't really apply as much now. Players who practice in academies, you know, they don't have bars in the in the same way, um, and even at, at venues, you know, they, they used to have a free bar, just sort of beer on tap all, all day. That's all gone. That's all gone, long gone. So the culture has sort of changed. But, um, you know, people who spend the money, spectators who come along, if they want a drink, they can have a drink. I, I don't see any problem with it, as long as, as you say, it doesn't get out of control. Now, an interesting subject here from Matt Tarrant. diversity in snooker, discuss. I applaud World Snooker Tour, inviting Ryan Evans and Yon-Yi onto the tour. In terms of disability, we've had Joe Swell play at a high level for years with his hearing impairment. WDBS do amazing work, but this hasn't yet seen a crossover to the Pro Tour. Rory McLeod is the only BAME Pro player from the UK, I can remember, but maybe you know others. Obviously, there are players from other countries, particularly in Asia. I'm not aware of any LGBTQ plus snooker professionals. Could and should snooker work harder, and I include the media, to make the sport a more welcoming place for diverse groups and to encourage their participation. Snooker crowds don't look very diverse, and I include myself, in that, as a white, middle-aged, heterosexual, cisgender bloke. How can we become more diverse? I've invited my wife and daughter to accompany me to events, but they look at me like I'm insane. My view for what it's worth is it, w- it would be fantastic. It would be a fantastic boost for the game if Rianne or Onyi could progress in a tournament, or if Rory could win one. Same would be the case if we had an openly gay player on tour, better still in the top 16. These things will come to pass. It's progress, but the sooner the better... And anything we can do to encourage and support diverse groups in every aspect of the game, including crowds, should be welcomed. Next email, snooker and its carbon footprint. Oh, joy of joys. Matt Tarrant in Derby. Well, it's it's a, these are good points, I think. Um, but it all starts at the grassroots, doesn't it? You know, uh, if 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 snooker is thought not to be the sport for you, if you belong to a, minor, a minority group, or if you don't see yourself... When you turn on the TV, then it's sort of a vicious circle Maybe you think, well, I'll I'll, I'll go into something else where I may be more welcome One of the things I've found about the Snooker Tour And I've been on it well, a quarter of a century really now Is that it is welcoming to everybody pretty much I mean, it, it does look like a very white male environment But actually, there's a lot of women who work on the circuit And uh, increasingly behind the scenes, you know More sort of non-white people and, and more people from diverse backgrounds Gay people as well uh, you know have worked on the circuit um but of course you don't see that if you're just watching the players uh and it starts as I say in the grassroots uh snooker clubs they're not like golf clubs you know you you can join them pretty cheaply and if you've if you've been around snooker clubs, you see all sorts of people in there, but it's them making that grade to become professionals um but it's not something I think you can i don't think it's something you can sort of force I think it's something that has to come naturally. The female players have been given a chance But they have to obviously do the business In terms of results um, Otherwise they're going to drop off again um, I'm sure these these issues You know, are, are discussed At the top level, although I have to say I mean, I had Jason Ferguson on, who's always good to talk to you, The WPBSA chairman But uh, the whole World Snooker board Is all basically white blokes Pretty much over 50 A couple of them may be under 50 But they're pretty much of a, of a type Now they're all individuals, but they will have the similar sort of world view because they've got a similar sort of background. So maybe if you want more diversity in the sport, it has to sort of start at that level, having sort of new approaches and, and new ways of looking at it from people from different backgrounds, maybe. But, you know, we've got a lot of players from all all around the world. Snooker is played all around the world uh, by all different types of people. Um, so, yeah, I think progress is maybe slower than in some other sports, but hopefully... Um, you know it 's something that will that will change and, that, and when you, when you look at the sport it, it represents maybe uh, a wider group of people um, but i don 't think there 's any magic bullet, as I say I think, I think it, it has to sort of happen organically and and, it, and and people have to believe that snooker is a sport that will accept them, and I believe it will accept pretty much everybody from what i 've seen um, it 's a kind of crazy game isn 't it and it, it, you know the more the merrier Aaron power. Um, writes on Fly Island I'd like to confirm that snooker particularly in the capital of Dublin is only going to be around as long as the current pensioners are still alive to run it I'm 27 and in my experience the average age for a snooker player in Ireland is mid-50s and that figure is only increasing I've also found that anyone around my own age who takes up the game quickly gives up due to, due to the steep learning curve and lack of instant gratification that snooker gives 15 years time many of the gentlemen's clubs and snooker halls will have closed and and the lunatics like myself who wish to continue playing will be renting a unit at the back of a Tesco. There may still be some talent that comes through from the UK, but the overall standard will fall off a cliff with the Ambing Town and the Chinese filling up the tour and many tour events taking place across Asia. Quite downbeat, but he ends with a fun fact. He says the lowest total amount of points that can be scored in a frame is 31, with the frame finishing 17-14, one solution. I'm not quite sure wh- how how you work that out, Aaron. I'm not, I'm not doubting you, but um, more information is required. If you don't mind getting back in touch, because I'm not when you say lowest amount of points, does that mean every ball potted? Uh, because lowest amount of points would be nil, presumably. You know, uh, but anyway, um, let us know. I'll, I mean, the point you make ties in with the diversity email because, of course, it, it, it's it's not just about sort of the various uh, different diverse groups it's also an age thing as you say and if young people are not playing snooker you're not going to get the new faces quite obviously so that's an issue it's a cultural thing Uh, you talk about you know lack of instant gratification all the rest of it but you know we've seen I mean it was nice to see ITV invited along young Stan Moody a 15 year old who's making waves Paul DeVille was there as well who's obviously had a good run at the English Open And, and they're doing good stuff in the amateur game there is an amateur game in the UK and Ireland, for that matter, um, and you know people are doing the best to build it up again. But uh, you know, you you can't force people to do something if snooker isn't seen, you know, as an activity for you. Then you know it's hard to see where the numbers are going to come from. I guess they're going to come from outside the UK, and and that's not necessarily actually a bad thing. Now, last week, uh, our American correspondent James Cook uh, complained about giving commentators giving out scores um, while matches are in progress, and Neil Caesar has uh, very trenchantly written an email to agree. He says, May I wholeheartedly agree with James regarding commentators giving out the score of the other games? I also have the Eurosport Discovery app, which allows you to watch the other matches, not televised. This has been rendered worthless by the continuing blurting out of the scores. Surely it's not beyond the imagination of broadcasters to give a quick heads up, or as you have adverts after every frame, why not make it practice to give scores immediately when you come back from the adverts uh, to give the scores then? At least we will know when to avert our attention if the scores are given at the same point in every match. Well, I hear you, Neil. And uh, I'm co- I'll be commentating on the UK Championship first round this week, uh, which is on Eurosport 2. So I will attempt, because uh, there's eight tables there, so there's a lot of scores to give out. And they're not all streamed either. That's another thing. But I will attempt to come up with some solution. I think I think it's important to you know not just focus on the, the, the one table and, and give respect to the other matches, But also, yes, to give respect to the viewers who may be uh, looking to watch them in other ways. So there'll be a balance there. Let's see if I pull it off or not. I suspect probably not. Now, Nathan Manley is writing from Australia. G'day, Dave. Greetings from Australia. First, let me say I'm a big fan of you and your great podcast. I've listened to every episode and can't wait for each episode to arrive. I've been intending to write to you for a while. But unlike a lot of other emails I hear you read out, I'm not a great wordsmith. Well, (laughs) Nathan, have you, have you not been listening? I mean, you know, no, no, no offence to our correspondents. This is, not, this is not a creative writing class. You can express yourself however you like. Uh, anyway, he, he continue, Nathan continues. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself and snooker in my local town. I live in Hamilton, Victoria, in Australia. We used to have a snooker club which had three full-size tables. Unfortunately, there are only about four of us in the whole town who actually played or knew anything about snooker. So about 10 years ago, the club decided to remove all the snooker tables and install seven seven seven-foot pool tables. This has improved attendance at the club, but means we no no longer had anywhere to play snooker. Being frustrated at not having anywhere to play snooker, I decided to build myself a shed and bought a Riley snooker table from an old lady from a farm where I do a lot of plumbing work. Now my friends and I have somewhere to play. Next year, we're going to start a four-man round-robin tournament. However, it will have to be handicapped as our mate Mark who used to run a snooker club in the UK, has a high break of 96, whereas my mate Tim has a high break of 39, and I can only boast a high break of 32. Despite our lack of ability, we really love snooker and chat endlessly about your latest podcast episodes, the latest news from tournaments, etc., and even talk about stories from the 1980s as though we'd lived through it all despite only being 10 at the time of the 85 final. Watching live snooker in Australia is quite hard as Eurosport is no longer offered on our pay TV channels. Unfortunately, the Eurosport Player app is not available in our country, but I managed to subscribe to the Matchum app and can watch most of the tournaments on that. Anyway, that's enough from me, but I just wanted to say thank you for your great support of Snooker and your awesome podcast. It really means a lot to people like me, and I'm sure many people around the world who love Snooker, but can't access live broadcasts. All the best, Dave, or if you're in Australia, we would nickname you Hendo. Regards, Nathan Manley. Well, thank you, Nathan. Then that email meant a lot to me, I can tell you. And it's good to see you're getting a little competition going. I'm intrigued by this old lady on the farm who had the table. I'd like to know more about her and how she how she came by the table and what the story is there. Um, and I'm glad you're able to watch on the Matchroom app. I believe that is available anywhere there's not a broadcast. But I know in some places it's complicated because in some areas there's pay TV rather than free TV. So it's different in every country, I know. But I'm pretty sure... In theory, now anywhere in the world, you should be able to watch the UK Championship next week. Now there'll be people writing in saying, "Well, I can't," which for which I'm sorry. But put it this way: it, the, more of the planet is covered than ever, and I hope uh, you enjoy it. And obviously, Neil Robertson, Australia's own, will be uh, will be defending the title there. But thanks for getting in touch, and uh, it's always interesting to hear, you know, what people's uh, sort of scene is where they live and what what the opportunities are to play and what little communities there are because uh, that's all part of it it's not all about you know the the sort of elite level it's about that grassroots support and not just you know people who come along to watch but people who are watching in your case from uh, from many miles away Kerry Richards is uh, this is I think the final email now but has come up with uh, uh, maybe the big issue of the week Kerry writes, in relation to the welcome re- recent reinstatement of goodbye bye Far be it from me to defend Phil Yates, however, I wonder if he was just bidding farewell twice, i.e. goodbye, bye. But made it sound like one elongated farewell. I knew of someone who would say, thank you very much, thank you, tar, whenever he thanked you. But when said in a South Walian accent, were prone to talking quite quickly, sounded like, thank you very much, thank you, tar. Important stuff, and just felt it prudent to put the other side across. Well, thank you, Kerry, but I was there when Phil did this, and we were at the Championship League, and... What people don't hear is, the, you know, counting down to, to off-air at the end of a programme, you're listening to, to something in your ear and it's a countdown, but you're also listening to other information. And Phil, you know, is very good at timing his comments, so he, he was timing it well. But in his mind, he was just caught between saying goodbye and saying bye-bye. So he said, <laughs> goodbye-bye. And uh, yes, it would become an unlikely, uh, an unlikely sign-off for us. Um, but that's what happened and, uh, you know, there's no, there's no getting around it. I just remembered actually on the, on the, we had the email from Donal about the uh, the, the drinking. I, the, I believe at the start of this podcast, you can listen to me reading out a beer advert. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know fans of uh, fans of corporate sellouts will enjoy that, but I have to say, they are sending me free beer, so what can you do? No, listen, we, you know we're, we are in part a commercial project here, you know we, anyway, um, that's it for this week. Uh, the UK Championship, of course, underway. I'll say this, I'm going to g- come out and defend this tournament because I can guarantee there'll be people looking to run it down and say it's not what it was. It is; It has changed, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's the, the format has changed, the, the length of matches has changed. It is still, though, a prestigious event. It's an event, I can tell you, every player still wants to win. It's a proud role of honour to be on. It's just a different event to what it used to be. Um, but I'm going to enjoy it. It's on, as I say, Eurosport. Uh, the first three days, and then Eurosport, and indeed the BBC, um, for the next nine days, and all the other platforms around the world as well, Matchroom Live, and all the rest of it. Um, and yeah, it's it's a, it's one of the great tournaments. Uh, um, and I I I prefer to look at it that way rather than look at what it used to be because it's not about what it was thirty years ago; it's just about what it is now. And as I say, a lot of people will uh, will enjoy. I'm sure. And I'm also going to rather preemptively defend the BBC. No one's actually had a go at them yet. Uh, but I can guarantee, because they're only on in the afternoons live on linear television for most of the tournament. And then uh, they're on Red Button and on online for most of the evening sessions until the end when they're back live again. Times have changed, OK? And linear television is now not the only way to watch things. Um, all of the matches on the main two tables will be available live. Throughout the event from Saturday When we get to the last 64 So two tables will be live Afternoon and evening somewhere Now, not everybody has The connected TVs with the BBC Sport app And all that stuff But it is available <laughs> It is out there 30 years ago it wasn't You were just you just got what you were given So you can't expect the BBC To suspend all programmes on BBC 2 Or indeed BBC 1 And put all the snooker on there But it is available It's also available on Eurosport Where I'll be commentating and all the other places that I mentioned, um, no Hazel, I believe Hazel's still in New Zealand, and uh, I, I think the BBC increasingly will be using players to commentate. That's up to them, obviously. But uh, I think I think people need to sort of remember that uh, you know it used to be very piecemeal. It used to be, you know, here is an hour, we'll see you in three hours for the highlights. Well, there's still highlights now, but it is live. You can watch it online. You can watch it on Eurosport. You can watch it somewhere, red button, somewhere it is there uh, that'll do for now, next week uh, as I say, you can hear my, myself and Alan McManus' trip to the Norbrek which was quite an experience all our yesterdays for Alan certainly um, we found a snooker queue, no spoilers but we found a snooker queue which we still can't quite explain why it was there in the meantime we're proud members of the Sports Social Network, check out their other podcasts and uh, you can email us podcast at mail.com podcast at mail.com uh, any email sent in will It'll be a couple of weeks Till we, we get to them Because as I say We've got this big Blackpool special next week Hope everyone enjoys The UK Championship I certainly will um, I had a great week in Bolton I just want to Reiterate that Um, And thank everyone At ITV Sport And Matchroom It was a terrific week And I hope That York Which is a wonderful venue The Barbican And the UK Championship Which is a wonderful tournament Can uh, provide us with uh, a lot, a lot, more excitement and enjoyment as we uh, continue this season and as we barrel towards Christmas. It's a very busy period, uh, yes. But for now, uh, in the words of Phil Yates, goodbye, bye.
0: Sports, social, podcast network.